Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. Hey everybody, welcome to The Emerald. I'm Josh. And I generally strive to get two episodes out per month. And you may have noticed that the last couple months, it's been a little bit slower paced than that. And that's because I've been launching this year-long course called The Mythic Body, and that's taken quite a bit of my time and energy. And as I reach a more sustainable pace with the course, I intend to go back to getting two episodes out per month. But for the last couple, it's been about one per month. So thanks for your patience and understanding. And if the course sounds interesting to you, a year of immersion, into myth and deep dive into the animacy that we discuss on this podcast, then feel free to shoot me an email at themythicbody at gmail.com. That's themythicbody at gmail.com. And I can put you on a list for more information for next year. And as always, for those who want to get involved, there is an ongoing study group for podcast patrons. It meets twice per month doesn't really cost very much at all and you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash the emerald podcast it's 2013 and i'm in tiruvannamalai south india for the kartikai deepam festival it happens once per year in november or december in fact it's happening this coming weekend It takes place at the time of a celestial conjunction involving the moon and the Pleiades. You know, the Pleiades, that little tiny star cluster that has its way of mythically imprinting minds and hearts in culture after culture after culture. All over South India, people celebrate Kartikai Deepam as the birth of Murugan Kartikeya, the dazzling six-headed peacock deity associated with the Pleiades, a light so dazzling, they say, even the god of fire couldn't contain it. In Tiruvannamalai, where I am in 2013, millions of people gather over 10 days to celebrate, to fast, to worship, to sing, to offer, to eat, to dance, to invoke, to connect, to shed, and perhaps to renew. The festivities are non-stop, devotional music at every turn, raucous parades of golden deities in the pre-dawn light, Elephant processions, families circling the great temple, carrying their babies in hammocks made of silk and sugarcane. There's an endless river of candlelight and offering fire, and temple flowers, and the rich scent of butter everywhere. Every temple and street-side shrine blazes with light. Some devotees crawl their way around the sacred mountain. Some do full pranams each step. Some sadhus and penance circle the mountain with hooks through their backs. An old blind man in rapture speaks in tongues. A grandmother in trance covers her eyes with her palm. For at festivals, it is said, the gods are aroused, present, vibrant. And so it's easier to pass into trance. So it's the climactic day of the festival, and I'm circling the mountain in the middle of a great throng of people, thousands upon thousands of people. Drums are pounding, horns blasting, 
I've chosen to circle the mountain at the exact peak moment, which means I'm in a crush of humanity, thousands upon thousands pushing forward, crying out, arms raised in devotional fervor. And then, all of a sudden, at that point of luminous, dusky twilight, everyone suddenly stops and goes silent. A million people silent. It's a silence you've never felt until you've felt it. The tides of people calm. The vast ocean calms at twilight. And then everyone, everyone is focused on the mountain. I can see the people in streams all the way up the sides of the mountain. Everyone's attention focused on the mountain. A million people, two million perhaps, totally silent. Waiting for something. For the moon to rise. The moon rises. And as it rises, a great flame goes up on the summit of the mountain. A tremendous lamp, taller than you or I, flames up. The moon, the flame, and then the silent crowd bursts into great cries. Aroara, aroara, aroara. The crowd cries, aroara. The flame, the moon, one dissolves into the other, myself perhaps dissolving into the crowd, the crowd into the mountain, the mountain into the flame, the flame into the moon. For ten days the flame burns, and the circling of the mountain continues. In memory the days blur into one another, a river of flower petals and black stones and light. But that one moment, that moment of the flame and the rising moon, is imprinted. That one moment at that one great festival. We talk a lot on this podcast about regular ritualized rapture and the essential role it plays in shaping culture, in forging communal bonds, in replenishing individual and societal knowledge, in giving people key access to a state of being that then translates into how we navigate an animate world. So the question becomes, how do we access this regular ritualized rapture? For many cultures, the answer is very simple. Regular ritualized rapture is accessed at festivals. Festivals inextricably linked to the cycle of the moon, to the celestial bodies and the waters and the rains, and the times of planting and harvest, and the mythic stories, so that festival, story, song, rapture, renewal, the pulse of the moon, and the functioning of a culture are really all one thing. And it's interesting because even in doing an episode on festivals, I've noticed in myself what you could call an internalized Calvinism. Calvinism, you know, that stern, work-oriented form of Protestantism. So an internalized Calvinism that says, are you really going to do an episode about festivals? Is that, you know, serious enough subject matter? Are you going to be able to take your podcast listeners on that deep mythosomatic journey that they love to go on? I mean, I'm assuming you love to go on it. Are you really going to take them there with a topic like festivals? 
And this is interesting, right? Because all throughout history, all across cultures, the festival is exactly what takes people into this place. The festival, the festival. I'm not necessarily talking about festivals like Ozfest or the Erie Canal Soda Pop Festival or last summer's Global Citizen Festival in Central Park with Coldplay and Billie Eilish. I'm not talking about entertainment. I'm talking about the festivals that for thousands upon thousands of years formed the drumbeat of culture. Communal enactments of the sacred. The festival was the regular, repetitive, ritualized bridge between us and the intermediary world, in which the ideal of reciprocity with this natural world of forces could actually be enacted over and over again. Festivals forged bonds, provided communal and individual focus, and through that focus came insight and knowledge. The festival gave space for, provided context for grief, for rapture, for joy, for love, for the passage of time, for the inevitability of change, for the honoring of those things that are lost forever and those things that sprout ever anew, like electric green rice shoots at a festival of planting. Who knows how many tears were shed at the festival of Thesmophoria? As for nine days and nine nights, the women fasted and reenacted every phase of Demeter's agonizing search for her missing daughter. Who knows how deep the rapture at the Ratayatra at Jagannath Temple, when 40-foot chariots are dragged through a crowd of millions by chariot bearers in trance. Hurts were healed at the festival. Thresholds crossed. Revolutions hatched at the festival. Transgression and humor were given their space at the festival. Nobles and even gods mocked at the festival. The festival was inundated with vegetation, with neem trees, with tulsi, with fennel, with harvest wheat and rosemary and sage and sweetgrass, with copal, with squash and corn, with pine boughs and cedar sprigs, with palm fronds and sugar cane and betel leaf and lime. The festival renewed our relationship with the vegetal world and established us in right relation with plants. The thirsts we needed to quench were quenched at festivals. The thirsts, you know of what I speak, the thirsts that if unquenched erupt into all manner of agitation. The thirsts that drive us in trajectories of restless seeking. The thirsts that are looking for something just out of reach. These thirsts were quenched at festivals. The festival was able to accomplish all these things specifically because the festival was a shared agreement around time. An architecting of temporal reality to construct a portal to the eternal. As the sanctuary articulates space, so the festival articulates time, Walter Burkert wrote. The festival is sacred time. The word week comes from the word festival. Every seventh day of the week in some traditions is time outside of time, rest time, Sabbath time, specifically for linking to the eternal, the time outside of time. We need specifically articulated time in order to access the eternal. Do you remember the time of the festival? Do you remember walking barefoot, bearing fennel fronds and crowns of laurel through the groves of olive and acacia on the slopes of the great mountain? The slow procession up the mountainside, singing the hundred names of the god the whole way. Then, in that liminal, eternal time of the festival, the descent into the cave, step by stone step, as the true drumbeat began. And there, in the dark, in the play of light and shadow, 
the running water, the gleam of the cave wall. After three days of dancing and chanting and humming and invocation, we heard at last the story of the god and felt it into our marrow. The myth sprang to life. The festival was where the neck hairs rose, where dancers transformed into lions, ultimately where we and the object of art, that focal point in the midst of wreaths of flowering branches, we and the object of art became one at last, in a culminating experience that could be called the initiatory moment. These days, we file festivals under the category of entertainment. You know, fun, diversion. Festivals are associated with frivolity and joy, with art sometimes, with consciousness alteration. Even these days with learning and exploring alternative methods of living and new ecological paradigms. But we rarely associate them with a particular word. Sanctity. Sacredness. Yet, sanctity is what allows the festival to serve its purpose as a gateway to eternity. To consecrate something, to make it sacred, is to architect it in a way that allows for the possibility of the initiatory moment. There's a split in modern culture between entertainment and sanctity between what Walter Benjamin called exhibition on the one hand and ritual on the other. So theater, which used to be in all senses of the word a sacred enactment, designed to throw participants and spectators into states of catharsis and rapture, theater which arose in fact at the great animist trance festivals of Dionysus, theater becomes entertainment. Music, once inseparable from rituals of communal trance induction, which gave voice to animate forces and summoned specific entities, which served as the prime rhythmic melodic narrative backdrop of culture, is now something that happens over there. Powerful, yet utterly removed from ritualized sacredness, with perhaps the exception of, you know, Christian rock festivals. Art becomes something hung on the wall and observed, instead of something right at the heart of the ritual that provokes the initiatory moment. Quote, works of art lose their cult value the moment they are exhibited. The works of art are no longer displayed on the festival road, but in museums. Exhibitions are not festivals, but spectacles. So that which was sacred becomes spectacle. The cult value, which very specifically is the value of the initiatory moment, is lost. And then on the other hand, whatever takes place within the sphere of the sacred, whatever we categorize as religious, is solemn, very, very serious, not to be confused with mere entertainment at all. Well, it's interesting to note that this split is historical and was totally intentional. Festivals, once sacred, were at a certain point de-sanctified by the church. And this de-sanctification leaves us in an interesting place, in which the domain of the festival becomes debauchery and mindless entertainment, and the domain of religiosity becomes the rigidity of the solemn. Why did this split happen? One can easily point to a growing fear in the church of populist access to ecstatic states. 
ecstatic states are dangerous to centralized authority, always have been. Why? Because in the ecstatic state, knowledge acquisition, communal bonding, insight into the laws of nature and how they reflect through the human being are available to all without the necessity of an arbiter. So, yeah, festivals were desanctified because they were too ecstatic, too populist. The people might feel God without the presence of the church. But there's more to it, too. The very idea of consecrated time available to all, a time devoted to ritualized sanctity in which human beings could access the eternal in the midst of the day-to-day, comes with its own problems if the goal is to keep a certain way of life going. With the rise of capitalism, Byung-Chul Han explains, there's an increasing fear of what you could call sacred time. Quote, The festival begins where the profane ordinary time ends. It presupposes a consecration. At the high time of the festival, one is initiated. If this threshold, this transition, this consecration that separates the holy and profane is suspended, all that remains is ordinary transient time, which is then exploited as time for work. Today, the high time has disappeared altogether in favor of the time for work, which has become total. End quote. So a time outside of ordinary time, a time neither here nor there is essential for human beings in order to gain deeper insight, perspective, connection. As Joseph Campbell once said, quote, the whole purpose of entering a sanctuary or participating in a festival is that one should be overtaken by the state known in India as the other mind, where one is beside oneself. Getting outside of one's day-to-day routine into the incubatory space of the timeless. Quote, the festive time as high time brings the time of everyday life to a standstill. During the festival, another time reigns. Something everlasting is intrinsic to the festival. The brilliance of eternity is inherent to festive time. So the festival is regular, ritualized access to the brilliance of eternity. And that time The time of the brilliance of eternity is the time in which really interesting things can happen, in which the festival funnels everyone in that shining space towards one thing, one glimpse, one rupture, one flow, one transmission, one limitless ocean, one eternal pouring forth, that moment, that one moment, the initiatory moment. Festivals, Initiation, and the Brilliance of Eternity. This time on The Emerald. The ancient Greek world can seem pretty dry if you read about it in a classics course. Professor Cornell West recently lamented the elimination of the classics department at Howard University as a spiritual catastrophe. And I agree with him. 
But it's also understandable that the classics are going by the wayside, not because they're outdated or because they should be canceled, but because they've been systematically sucked of all life. How we study the classics now is not anything resembling how they lived in the lifeblood of ancient culture. If you were in ancient Greece, you didn't read the Iliad and the Odyssey on paper and then discuss them in some abstract format unless you were a part of some much later philosophical school. You heard them sung at festivals, and you sang too, and everyone sang, and the pounding of feet and the group invocation in chorus of the holy meter of the epics brought them alive. They were sung, enacted, clapped to, accompanied by rattles and flutes and kithere, orated, enacted with sweat and fervor and life. At festivals, young poets competed in rapid-fire recitations of Homer, ancient bard rapper rhapsodists each trying to outdo the other, spitting rhymes and dizzying dactylic hexameter. Poetry was somatic fervor. It pounded, it worked the mouth, the heartbeat rose, the breath quickened, the pulse leapt. Poetry had a body. Across the Greek world, the gods had songs. Each of the forces of nature had songs, and those songs were sung at festivals. For what was a festival, and therefore what is time, what is access to eternity, without singing? Is access to eternity even possible without singing? Singing in chorus, very different than observing a concert from afar, singing the song of the swallows, as they did on Rhodes. The many choruses of Apollo, singing. The chorus of the Delian maidens, singing. And you have to get out of the image of the chorus as something like the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, I'm talking about singing as rapturous practice. The songs of Pan were punctuated with shrieks and ululations, rises in pitch, a particular lamenting wail called the Krauga. It was singing as transinduction, singing as a portal to being seized by the gods. The ancient Greek festival was absolutely teeming with life. Drums, flutes, kithere, music, Athletics, hair combing, flower crown making, theater, mask making, puppetry. As Barbara Ehrenreich says in Dancing in the Streets, quote, We hear of frenzied nocturnal dances with crazed outcries to the stirring accompaniment of shrill flutes, timpani, metal cymbals, castanets, bull roars, and rattles. We hear of snake handling, of trances, of prophesying, even of self-mutilation. Pain and joy, trance and exhaustion, rapture, focus, grief, catharsis, solidarity, connection, all of these were the domain of the festival. Each of the gods had their festival, and each of the gods in ancient Greece means a lot. Dozens of festivals aligned to the moon, aligned to a particular event in the story of the god or goddess, each anchored with dancing. Burkert says not a single ancient initiation festival can be found that did not contain dancing. All across the Mediterranean, they danced. They danced. 
solo acrobatic dances, communal dances, ecstatic dances, performative dances. Everywhere the girls danced for Artemis. Artemis the she-bear. Artemis beneath the moon. Artemis by the birthing mother's side. The maidens of Artemis danced the bear dance. The Mayanads of Dionysus danced until the rapture took them. The goat-foot god Pan brought dance to the people with the light steps of his cloven hooves, it was said. The Corabantes clanged their shields. The dances of Athena mimicked the clamor of the goddess's birth from Zeus's cracked skull. And the Athenians, who Theseus freed from the labyrinth, journeyed to Delos, the birthplace of Apollo, and danced the crane dance for the first time. The crane dance, Geranos, the dance that enacted their transcendent journey out of the labyrinth, what Marcel Detienne called the longest journey in the shortest space. So the crane dance enacts the human journey itself, the longest journey in the shortest space, the journey from temporal reality to eternity, from confusion to clarity, from the day-to-day -day waking mind to the place of rapture. The crane in the ancient Greek mind passes over into the next world. As Aristotle said, the crane travels the world from one end to the other. So the crane dance, enacted at festival after festival across the ancient world, opened the door to eternity, took people across the threshold, across the great traverse of ignorance of day-to-day -day banality and suffering, through the threshold of the initiatory moment into the eternal, where the dancers beheld the eternal source like virginal youths, after days in darkness, emerging from the mouth of the labyrinth with tear-caked faces, blinking in rapturous awe at the rising of the sun. As Gaudenzio Ragazzi says, if the crane, like other water and migratory birds, each year completes the journey that leads it to the edge of the world, then it also knows the path that leads to the hereafter. The crane, like Ariadne's thread in the labyrinth, determines the connection between the beginning and the end, the visible and the invisible, the human and the divine. In every time, in every place, human beings are able to discover the most perfect synthesis of the fundamental values of their culture in the rhythmic measure of dance steps. Into the eternal through the steps of the crane dance, the flight to the edge of the world. I am, Rumi once sang to his beloved teacher Shams. Shams, I am a water bird flying into the sun. A water bird flying into the sun. The island of Delos, the place of the origin of the crane dance, and it's worth looking it up to see the beautiful ruins amidst the blue Mediterranean Sea. Delos was home to festival upon festival. Can you see it? Can you see the torches lit on the seashore? The white temple steps, the full moon, 
arriving into the harbor at twilight as the choruses sing. Can you see it? Quote, the members of the Amphictyoni assembled in Delos in long garments with their wives and children to worship the god Apollo with gymnastic and musical contests, choruses, and dances. Gymnastic contests, you see, athletic sport lived right at the heart of the ancient festival. In fact, most of what we think of as modern sport arose from sacred communal ritual. On Delos, on the slopes of Lycaon, all over Greece, worshippers raced on foot, threw javelin and discus, leapt, flipped, wrestled, all as a form of ecstatic praise. If you listen to athletes describe peak states, you understand that there is a profound link between athletics and rapture. Some of the most profound states of conjunctive consciousness I've experienced have been during marathons. The reason our society affords sport so much attention is precisely because it takes the crowd into a sympathetic rapture, complete with wails of grief and cries of joy and repetitive chants and group entrainment, all the hallmarks of transinduction. It's become popular for progressives to voice criticism of the place that sport holds in modern culture. So, you know, when Noam Chomsky says that sport has no meaning... Uh, for one thing, because it, you know, it, it offers people something to pay attention to uh, that's of no importance. That keeps them from worrying about... You know, keeps, them, keeps them from worrying about things that matter to their lives that they might have some idea about doing something about. And Meryl Streep says it's not art. So Hollywood is crawling with outsiders and foreigners. And if we kick them all out, you'll have nothing to watch but football and mixed martial arts, which are not the arts. It's totally missing the point. Sport isn't going anywhere. Sport serves a very vital purpose in culture. People will always seek rapture through sport. The problem isn't sport. The problem is that sport, like everything else, has been torn from context and monetized, recontextualized, stripped of sacredness, and then easily becomes mass distraction. But, of course, the exact same thing can be said of theater. Ritual athletic enactment is an essential human need just as ritual theatrical enactment is. Both were traditionally sacred. Historically, all human activities of peak intensity were harnessed in service of the initiatory moment. This is the role of the festival. Joy at the festival, the pounding of feet at the festival, the sounding of drums at the festival, leaping, throwing, running, hearts pounding at the festival, tears of grief and renewal pouring forth at the festival. Grief. Grief for the death of Adonis. Grief for the abduction of Persephone. Grief for the ripping apart of Acteon. The festival was the telling of and the ecstatic enactment of the story of the god or goddess. And the story of the god or goddess was visceral, brutal, real. One of grief and joy, loss and longing, dismemberment and resurrection, separation and return, ecstasy and pain. And so the festival became a time when these very forces within us were given voice and repatterned and renewed and anchored and shed. The grief of the mother goddess at her stolen child became inseparable from the cathartic ritualized grief of the festival goers. From Joseph Campbell again, quote, 
The Greek festival called Thesmophoria, celebrated in memory of the sorrows and later joy of Demeter and Persephone, was exclusively for women, and predated Homer, meaning it went back at least 3,000 years. The women fasted for nine days in memory of the nine days of sorrow of Demeter as she wandered over the earth, holding a long, staff-like torch in either hand, searching for her abducted daughter. Demeter met the moon goddess Hecate, and together they proceeded to the sun god Phoebus, whose all-seeing eyes had seen Persephone abducted and could tell them where she was. After which, Demeter, in wrath and grief, quit the world of the gods. As an old woman heavily veiled, she sat for days by a well known as the Well of the Virgin. She served as nurse in a kingly household near Eleusis, which then became the great sanctuary of her rites in Greece. And she cursed the earth to bear no fruit, either for man or for the gods, for a full year, until, when Zeus and all the deities of Olympus had come to her in vain, one after another, begging her to relent, Zeus at last caused Persephone to be released. Embraced and accompanied by both her mother and the goddess Hecate, Persephone returned to Olympus in glory, and, as though by magic, the fields were covered again with flowers and the life-giving grain. Imagine nine days each year to fast and lament and sing and walk bearing torches and recount the story of a grieving mother goddess and how many mothers there had known such grief themselves and what was that festival for them. This is something to understand about the myths and stories. They are intense, they are brutal in part to allow us to ritually accompany them into spaces we need to go communally and within ourselves. Gods and goddesses die and regenerate to help us regenerate. Some have spoken these days about rewriting the story of the abduction of Persephone. And I understand as much as I can, it's difficult to be faced with a story about the abduction of a young woman in a world in which women still face this awful reality today. Native women disproportionately. But if the story is rewritten, does that rewrite the problem? If the story is rewritten, how will the women of Thesmophoria grieve? How will they heal? These are subjects without easy answers, and I'm simply posing questions. But suffice to say that stories aren't actually rewritten until they are rewritten in our tissues, in our bones. If the uncomfortable is purged from the historic record without the somatic repatterning, then we lose the ability not only to learn from our mistakes, but to enact, feel, grieve, regrow, and eventually expunge on a somatic level, not a theoretical one. Right at the heart of the festival is pain. Part of the reason our festivals have lost their transportive power is because of the total removal of pain in favor of amusement. A society that takes sacred enactment and turns it into entertainment almost certainly removes the element of pain. And whether we like to admit it or not, pain is a key component of opening the doorway to the eternal. Anyone who tells you anything else, as Wesley says in The Princess Bride, is selling you something. So, 
Also, the festival is a place of trance induction through the deliberate harnessing of pain. This is something you can witness firsthand at festivals all across India. Francesco Briganti describes ecstatic trance through pain induction in his article Hindu Devotional Ordeals and Their Shamanic Parallels. He describes, quote, perforation of different parts of the body, especially the tongue and the sides, with long metal rods or needles, walking and jumping over red-hot coals, falling from a high scaffolding onto a row of sloped blades or on thorny bushes, and lying on a wooden plank studded with nails. The hook-swinging ceremony is the last and final exercise in the series. While whirling in the air, men suspended from hooks pierced through their flesh, shower flower petals and throw down fruits on the crowd assembled below. They invoke the names of different terrific forms of Shiva and the goddess and sometimes sing songs. He describes firewalking, the handling of melted resin, and the hanging of a penitent by his ankles on a scaffold from where he is swung through the flames of a fire. At the Alaria festivals for the great mother goddess Sibylle, Worshippers ritually mourning the mutilated vegetation god Attis fasted and paraded through the streets, wailing, beating themselves, and sometimes self-mutilating, quote, wounding their arms and chests. Self-wounding, of course, has a reputation perhaps for being a medieval Catholic patriarchal penitente type thing, but self-wounding is alive and well in the goddess traditions of the world. I can't even count the varieties of penitents I've seen at animist goddess temples across India. Swords through faces, tridents through tongues, razor-sharp nail beds only brought out once a year during the festival of goddess Tata Tarini. At the Deoda festival to the goddess Manasa Devi in Assam, quote, dancers possessed by various deities engage in an ecstatic, spectacular performance that involves animal sacrifice, consumption of raw meat and blood, and jumping on the blades of swords. Offering one's own blood to the mother goddess is a time-honored tradition. Spontaneous self-decapitation and castration as offering are recounted at the temples of the Divine Mother. At the largest goddess festival on the planet, the Ambubachi Mela, underground rock springs that are the fallen womb of the mother goddess run red for three days during the rainy season, and five million goddess worshippers clamor to drink the menstrual blood of the goddess and honor her cycle of shedding and renewal. Blowing ram's horn, shouting Jai Ma, sacrificing goats and water buffalo, and showering piles of red hibiscus on the womb waters of the mother goddess. We have to understand the mythosomatic cycle here. Dismemberment, loss, pain, grief provoke renewal, just as a decomposing log sprouts new seedlings. Or, as Sophie Strand reminds us, a dead ant body becomes a vessel for a cordyceps fungus to grow. So the complete cycle is one of loss, pain, grief, death, renewal, growth, flowering, and ecstatic exultation. The modern festival, the Festival of Entertainment, generally wants to focus only on one part of this cycle, the part above the ground. This leaves the modern festival ultimately lacking in transformative power. Transformative power comes through the full cycle. If Persephone does not go to the underworld, the world is not renewed. If one thing does not die, another is not born. A festival is not traditionally an escape into spectacle. A festival is a journey into the depths for the express purpose of shedding and re-sprouting. So, as always, I'm not suggesting that everyone run out and start doing these painful practices or that we start an event called Pain Fest or anything. It's just that if our mass enactments were more real, 
more attuned to the vegetal cycle, then they might actually become vehicles for genuine change. Who knows, perhaps the disruption, the violence that now occurs at mass gatherings, might not be so prevalent if grief and catharsis were built into the structure of the festival itself. I can imagine a festival, a festival of great grieving and mourning, a festival to grieve over the loss of the natural world, without a hundred sponsoring environmental organizations or specific causes or workshop panels focusing on very immediate human solutions, a festival in which we simply take the time to say, we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do, great mother. We don't know what to do. Take us into your arms. We don't know what to do. And in her arms, in the arms of tear-soaked rapture, taking days, precious days, to sing to her, to feed her, to offer to her, to dance to her, to water the earth with tears, to cut fresh blossoms for her, to share stories of her body of perpetual death and renewal, her body of green birth and decay, to chant her many names, to chant her many names. As much as there is pain and grief at an ancient festival, there is always the promise of renewal, a renewal which is embedded in the stories of the gods, and in the vegetal cycle, and in the breath cycle, and the cycle of ancestry and lineage. The festival is the time to enact renewal, which it does by taking participants across limits, cracking them open and then sprouting them anew, and which it also does very specifically, texturally, somatically, through the deep interaction with plants. Plants and festivals plants and festivals, wreaths, boughs, garlands, crowns, flower offerings, maypoles. The festival, at its heart, is vegetal. Some studies say that India goes through 800 million tons of flower offerings every year. Evidence of the devotional flower industrial complex is everywhere you go in India. Strings upon strings, piles upon piles of marigolds, roses, lotus blossoms, orchids... The Siberian shamanic festival rites center around birch. The Polynesian sacred dancers are clothed in greenery and flowers. The rustling of the grass skirts in the hula becomes an instrument all its own, stirs the dynamic energies awake. There is a power to the sound, like the movement of wind, like the hiss of ocean over pebbles. The hiss of the grasses, the breath of the gods. The gods are plants. The cycle of the gods is the vegetal cycle. Goddess Ceres is cereal, is grain. Dionysus is the ivy plant and the fennel bulb. Apollo is laurel. Artemis is Artemisia, who whispers soothing songs into the ears of birthing mothers. At the ancient festival to the Magna Mater Sibylle, a sacred pine was erected as the center pole. The pine, the body of mutilated Attis transmogrified, was hung with wreaths of violets and summer blossoms. 
In India, one of my dear teachers greets every day at 4.30 a.m. by bowing before the Tulsi plant three times and singing to it. The festivals for goddess Mariamman in South India are steeped in neem leaves. Devotees in rapture wear collars of neem as they process through the streets. The festival is the time to touch plants with our hands, to wear plants on our bodies, to offer plants, abstain from certain plants and then eat plants again, to tie bundles of medicine, weave wreaths, crown oneself in oak leaves. The festival renews all of our vegetal relationships. At the festivals of Apollo, children paraded through the streets singing and bearing irresioni, branches of olive and laurel, covered with wool, fruits, cakes, and flasks of olive oil dedicated to Apollo. The song they sang, Eresioni for us, brings figs and bread of the richest, brings us honey and pots and oil to rub the body. Vestiges of the vegetal centrism of festivals remain in our modern holidays. Pumpkins at Halloween, Christmas trees at Christmas, mistletoe to kiss under. But for the most part, these vegetal relationships have been supplanted, for there is only one plant that truly reigns supreme in the modern holiday. Which plant am I referring to? Name me a modern holiday that does not utterly revolve around sugar. Halloween candy, Easter candy, Christmas cookies, Thanksgiving pie, Valentine's Day chocolate. American children consume 100 million pounds of sugar on Halloween alone. Sugar has become the sacred plant at the center of the modern festival. So, again, we've taken the most addictive part of the cycle, the most consumptive part of the cycle, the top of the cycle of fullness and lack, and sidelined all the other parts that make the festival a full, natural cycle of enactment. All the asceticism, pain, deprivation, loss, grief, longing, removed in favor of an illusion of perpetual fullness. Historically, you feasted at festivals because you had just fasted. You didn't just feast and feast and feast. You feast after you'd fasted. The empty and the full balanced out in the enactment of the festival cycle because that's the natural cycle. Now, all we want to enact is more. More, 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 more. And what do we get? Most of our holidays have become familial nightmares. With no ritualized enactment of deprivation, loss, pain, grief, no underworld journey, no slaying of the god to bring about their eventual renewal, and instead the expectation of a false, perpetual, grinning happiness, what happens? Families skewer each other at the dinner table instead. It has become a time-honored ritual. This vision of the festival, the holiday, as more, 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 as debauchery, is a direct outgrowth of the desanctification of the festival. All that is earthly and debaucherous and sinful and irreverent and transgressive on one side, and all that is holy and not of this earth and solemn and serious on the other. This desanctification was slow and deliberate. 
It started with 4th century church edicts around dancing, particularly women dancing. As folk and animist festivals retained their power into the early Middle Ages, and even Christian appropriation of pagan festivals couldn't remove the ecstatic folk elements, the church became increasingly uncomfortable. Ultimately, the church basically said, you can do this, but it's not sacred. It's not to be done in the church. It's not part of the holy day. Not part of the portal to eternity. As Barbara Ehrenreich says, quote, Inevitably, something was lost in the transition from ecstatic ritual to secularized festivity, something we might call meaning or transcended insight. In ancient Dionysian forms of worship, the moment of maximum madness was also the sacred climax of the rite, at which the individual achieved communion with the divinity. Medieval Christianity, in contrast, offered communion in the form of a morsel of bread and a sip of wine soberly consumed at the altar. So this is interesting, right? Because it's like now you've only got two options. Sober, empty ritualism in which you feel nothing at all or drunken debauchery in which you ultimately also feel nothing at all. And this dichotomy of debauchery versus the solemn, solemnness, solemnity, is built into the effect cycle of the chosen substance of consciousness alteration of the time, alcohol. What do I mean? I mean... Quite simply, medieval Europeans spent most of their time either drunk or getting over being drunk. Religious cycles of sin and guilt mirrored this effect cycle of alcohol exactly. The drunk-sober dichotomy permeates medieval somatic experience and therefore makes its way into medieval religious narratives because somatics determines culture. One is either festive and debaucherous or one is solemnly regretting it the next day. And the sacred ecstatic, luminous, animate, does not care much for either side of this dichotomy, either debauchery or guilt. Alcohol so deeply permeates and is so bound up with the historic trajectory of European culture, it's hard to even see how pervasive it is. But think about it this way. One does not see this sin, guilt, debauchery, confession, festive, serious dichotomy in cultures like the Huichol of Mexico whose ritual and festive life centers around the peyote plant. It's difficult to imagine a culture whose rites and festivals center around an entheogen creating such a schism, because that's not the effect of the plant that they ingest. Entheogens have a habit of revealing what we need to take care of in our lives, but in a way that is supportive and loving, and grows within us in tendril-like spirals that fortify us, rather than a manic cycle that removes all inhibition and then makes us guilty about it later. How everyone navigates this world of substance is, of course, their choice. It's just that as we often overlook in a culture that cares more about abstraction than somatics, the very real somatics of what we ingest goes a long way to determining cultural and religious narrative. Somatics determines culture. Somatics determines ideology, not the other way around. What plants live at the center of your life? In this great festival of honoring that is your life, what would you put at the center? Historically, festivals were powerful because something lived right at the center. The ancient festival existed to take participants on a journey, and that journey had a culmination, a center point. 
a sacred stone or a shaft of wheat revealed, or a moment of communion of some kind, the initiatory moment, the apex of the festival, so that all the many avenues of rapture, the dancing, the singing, the pounding of feet, the sweating, the chanting, the poetic recitation, the mask-making, the theatrical enactment, the pain induction, the trance possession, the hoops and hollers of the oracles ridden by the gods, the tears of grief and lament, the flower offerings, were all harnessed to take people to one place, the initiatory moment, where, at the culmination of all, one is cracked open, the small self blown wide open, and one slips, floats, is carried off, is devoured into a moment of eternity to glimpse the visage of the God. This is the journey of the festival and why so many festivals involve actual journeys. The procession, the procession to submerge the goddess, the procession to glimpse the stone, the procession was key to the ancient Greek festival. Quote, the center to which the sacred action is drawn is naturally a sanctuary where sacrifices and initiation take place, but the pathway there is also important and sacred. The annual procession to Eleusis for the initiatory rites was massive, thousands of people parading 30 kilometers to the holy hill outside of Athens. Burkert describes basket bearers, water bearers, fire bearers, vase bearers, branch bearers with boughs of bay and olive and laurel, bearers of secret vessels for Dionysus and Demeter, sacrificial war chariots, massive masks, gorgon heads, which the festival goers honored with offerings and by not staring directly at the gorgon's eyes. Then, the arrival at the sanctuary on the great hill, the arrival to torches all ablaze, the shrines decked in flowers, the smoke thick, the songs, the dances, the tears, all enhanced by the flow state one experiences after an 18-mile parade while fasting. And then the great enactment began, almost certainly brought to humming, pounding, transcendent life through the ingestion of entheogenic sacrament, the journey toward the initiatory moment which necessitated going into the deepest depths first. As Jan Bremer says, quote, Before the high point of the ritual occurred, the initiated were first subjected to a terrifying experience. As Plutarch notes, subsequently, before the initiatory moment, before the climax, come all the terrible things, panic, shivering, and sweat, and amazement. It's the same rhythm that we can see in Plato's Phaedrus, where... Those who have seen a godlike face first experience shuddering, sweating, and abnormal heat. We may safely assume that the Eleusinian clergy knew how to build up tension in the performance, and several sources state that prospective initiates were frightened during initiations into all kinds of mysteries. Rapture, grief, fear, the initiatory journey directly mirrors what it is to fast in the wilderness, to hunt, to find one's way home after days in the biting cold. The initiatory moment is woven into our Paleolithic tissue. Paleolithic life was one such moment after the other. Nights of extremes followed by resplendent dawns. Hunters running barefoot for hours. 
followed by a sharp moment of death, the death of the animal, which was the death that brought the immediate gift of renewal, life-giving food, the initiatory moment, the primal somatic working of consciousness, which drifts in winding spirals and longs to be taken on a journey towards center, towards rupture, towards renewal, towards home. We have to understand how the festival mirrors the workings of consciousness itself, what it is for consciousness to have such a focal point. Imagine years of waiting to be initiated at the festival, friends who had gone through the initiation and come back changed but can't speak about it. What little they say comes with the welling of tears, the tears that arrive with the memory of something sharp and bright, whispers of the story of the goddess to be told in full only at the festival one's entire socio-cultural experience of the world oriented around this mythic narrative of death and renewal. Scholars have wondered how the grand reveal, the culminating moment at Eleusis, the culmination of all those days of fasting and weeping and dancing, could be something as simple as revealing a shaft of wheat. How could it be so simple? Because the festival mirrors the process of the consciousness breaking through into ecstasy, so the reveal is the moment itself enacted. As profound and simple as consciousness itself finding at last, after all that wandering, a radiant focal point. A focal point. A shaft of grain. Grain, that is, for people who truly depend on grain, who are utterly bound to the cycle of growth and fruiting and decay and death and renewal. Grain, that is, life itself. So the great reveal at Eleusis is life itself, the transmission of life. Somatic experience, consciousness itself, is a festival procession that works in spirals of offering and praise and pain and death and renewal towards an initiatory moment. The tantric texts will explicitly tell you this. Consciousness is a festival, swirling around center, harnessable through sound and light and repetition and story and invocation. Non-dual tantric worship, the interior worship of the yogis and the tantrikas, is described as a festival. The full sensory experience of what it is to be human, Utpaladeva says, quote, This is what the yogi offers in the sacred festival of non-dual worship plunged in the inebriating experience of cosmic bliss. The purpose of a body is therefore the same as the purpose of the festival, to be linked, synchronized, entrained, enraptured towards the initiatory moment, the aesthetic moment, the moment of the outpouring of art, the moment of eternity, in which the full cycle is enacted. The body is a festival ground, and that doesn't mean just, hey, the body is a festival ground, so let's party. It means, as the Shiva Sutra says, the body is the offering. Every action of the body is the vow we make before creation. The body is where the lunar cycles, the rhythms of daylight and night, the breath cycles, the pulsing of organs and spines co-mingle and syncopate, bringing the potential for, on the one hand, arrhythmic agitation, uncentered, unfocused, ungrounded, flashes of rapture not followed, insights not enacted, or, on the other hand, the potential for deep syncopation. 
syncopation between our somatic selves and the rhythms of nature, in which the harnessing of breath, movement, is the same as the promise of the festival, an enacted procession towards the brilliance of eternity. This vision of the body, encapsulated in the words, the kingdom of heaven is within, has always been inherently threatening to centralized religious authority. The spiritual in medieval Catholicism bears no resemblance to the body, and anyone who suggests it does is liable to have their body liquidated. And yet, quote, in failing to contemplate the cosmic body of the self, we fail to experience the sacred festival of the external manifestation of the glory of its vibrational nature. In other words, if we get too caught up in ideology, in abstraction, and specifically in abstraction that tells us that the cosmos is anything other than a great body of which our own bodies are a reflection, then we fail to behold and feel reality as it is, a vibratory bliss procession circling in vast offering cycles around the humming center of focused awareness, the humming center of the initiatory moment, the domain of the body, consciousness, and the festival. Bodies in this vision exist to have breath course through them, to have sense experiences refined and offered back on the holy altar of nature as overflowing vessels, to have the nature gods reawakened and installed in the limbs and joints and centers of the body, to speak as Saraswati's lute speaks, to gain four-directional vision like the vision of Brahma's heads, to gain the precise focused brilliance of Durga's sword, bodies are the very instrument of the brilliance of eternity. Just don't tell that to the Calvinists. For the modern capitalist vision of bodies is not as a festival, but as a factory, a cog, as Aaron Reich says, quote, the repression of festivities was in a sense a byproduct of the emergence of capitalism. The middle classes had to learn to calculate, save, and defer gratification. The lower classes had to be transformed into a disciplined, factory-ready working class, meaning far fewer holidays and the new necessity of showing up for work sober and on time six days a week. Peasants had worked hard, of course, but in seasonally determined bursts. The new industrialism required ceaseless labor all year round. Protestantism, especially in its Calvinist form, played a major role in convincing large numbers of people not only that unremitting, disciplined labor was good for their souls, but that festivities were positively sinful, along with mere idleness. End quote. Yet the urge towards the festive is innate. It remains. So we are left with celebration without sanctity, without center, the loss of the initiatory moment the loss of the transformative power of the festival. What happens when we lose this focus on the initiatory moment? Rapture without center. A rapture with no guiding principles, no foundational protocols, no lasting communal bonds, no intrinsic tie to the law of the land, and so a rapture that at its best is limited in the scope of its effect and at worst degenerates into chaos. 
If you ever want to see a step-by-step illumination of what happens when festivals are unanchored from the protocols that lead to the initiatory moment, watch the 1970 documentary Gimme Shelter about the free festival that took place on December 6, 1969 at the Altamont Speedway, a festival which was, in all senses of the phrase, a free-for-all. Because festivals were supposed to be all about freedom, right? No structure at all. Structure equals religiosity, and that stands contrary to peace, love, and celebration, so much so that, hey, let's put on a festival with no fences. No fences, man. A million people and no fences, and no backstage, no dividing lines. That's so hierarchical and authoritarian. We don't really need security. It's structuralist to have security, right? But we do have to have some type of vibe checker, so let's ask the Hells Angels to do security and, you know, let's pay them in beer. What could go wrong? And, of course, a whole lot went wrong. Here's the moment Mick Jagger stares out into the chaos and perhaps realizes that peace and love abstracted from actual embodiment is just an ideology that doesn't always mesh with where people are actually at. Uh, A people, I mean, who's fighting what for? You know, if we if we are all one, let's go we're all one. Why are we fighting? Listen, either those cats call it, man, or we don't play. We need doctors down here now, please. Can we have a doctor down here now to the front? About 25 years ago, I helped organize a pretty big festival. It was called the Tibetan Freedom Concert, and it was the largest benefit show of the 1990s. Beastie Boys, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Rage Against the Machine, A Tribe Called Quest, a who's who of 90s rock and hip-hop giants coming together for a common cause. And, of course, the inimitable, undeniable Bismarck Key, a giant in his own right, the self-described McRib sandwich of hip-hop always appearing just when you've forgotten it, like a McRib sandwich, like flowers blossoming in springtime. His words, not mine. R.I.P. Biz. My name is Biz It was an interesting cultural clash, 90s slacker cynicism meets hopeful activism and even ceremonial Tibetan ritualism. In making a documentary about the concert, we caught this gem of a mid-90s conversation about apathy and lack of focus in the modern festival. Making people aware of what's going on, you know, it's better than nothing, you know. It doesn't seem like anyone's really caring about it. Like, yesterday when that guy was talking about it, I was like talking to people and... People weren't, like, affected by it. They were, like, lethargic and dead, you know? It's like, what's wrong with America, you know? It's like people aren't really inspired by what's really going on with Tibet. Well, he was talking about how he's tortured and stuff and, and, like, all those horrible things that are are happening in Tibet. We just wanted to enjoy ourselves. I'll tell you why, man. That guy was talking for days. That's why, you know? Yeah. You know, I care and everything, but, you know, short attention span. I care and everything, but short attention span. These could be 
fitting words for humanity's epitaph, could they not? We cared and everything, but short attention span. So now, where is the festival in the modern imagining? The fear of being religious, of having an overarching worldview, of having a grand mythic narrative prevents the full initiatory potential of the festival or the work of art. With entertainment as the ruling principle, we lose cultural mechanisms of grief, of catharsis, of group bonding in favor of just have your own experience. And of course, there's value in having your own experience, in not having it orchestrated. But ultimately, all art is orchestrated. And we perhaps shouldn't let our fear of the religious, of the structured, of the deliberately orchestrated, impede on the ecstatic power of organized enactment in helping us access the brilliance of eternity. For me, I want my children to have the deep, bonding, rapturous, ingrained experience that an ancient festival brings. Look, my sons, watch carefully. Now we tie the olive branches together. Now we affix the little casks of oil to the branches. Now we weave our crowns of laurel. Now we put them on. Now we light the little lamps that you will hold as you walk through the streets. Go, my sons, with the other children, and sing aloud to the God of music and harmony and prophecy and initiation. Your voices, just two among many hundreds of voices. You, you tiny waves in a vast, vast sea. But each of your voices absolutely vital to the chorus. Each of your voices vital to the chorus. I want them to have this embodied experience of individuation and collectivization at once. I want them to smell the laurel leaf and to feel the oil and to have their fingers sore from the tying of the plant bundles. I want us to rediscover a deep tactile relationship with plants. I want this ritualism ingrained in the everyday, not just something we talk about at transformational workshops. I long for festivals of rapturous focus. Can we bring it back? There are certainly a whole lot of alternative festivals these days that are trying. Burning Man is or was more than just a chaotic rock festival. Barter economy, alternative economic paradigms, artist-centric creation of initiatory space, mass consciousness alteration, a big ritual at the end. And at this point, the number of spin-off festivals numbers in the dozens. Friend of the pod, Jen Isabel Friend, differentiates between big music festivals and transformational festivals like Cosmic Convergence, Beloved, Enchanted Forest, Sonic Bloom. Quote, Transformational festivals present an opportunity to recreate yourself in a safe container. With the understanding that if our collective pursuit is a peaceful world, we must make ourselves into beings who can envision, create, and sustain such peace. Regardless of who you are for the rest of the year, you become what you choose while you are present in these temporary autonomous zones. Web designers become dancers, waitresses become yoginis, limiting beliefs are shed, habits are foregone, and futures are re-envisioned. 
Many of these modern festivals are noteworthy due to their scope and range rather than their focus. As Friend says, quote, they often include permaculture and sustainability courses, yoga and martial arts classes, healing arts offerings such as Reiki, massage, or sound therapy, meditation, arts and crafts, tantric relationships, flow arts, dance, and even play shops for kids and families. End quote. And all this is valuable stuff. This scope of offering has its wonderful benefits. It sounds like a great weekend. And at the same time, perhaps we need to consider, in an age marked by a lack of focused attention, maybe we need to consider the value of festivals centered on one thing, one funneled experience, one initiatory moment, one glimpse of the visage of the god. The festival as varied learning environment is different than a festival in which the focus is on the story of the very specific goddess, the body of the very specific goddess, the death of the very specific goddess, the renewal of the very specific goddess, the offerings to the goddess, the songs to the goddess, the procession of the goddess. This is a very different thing. Another friend of the pod, Maya Ward, organizes a festival in Melbourne, Australia, called the Kingfisher Festival. The festival, its artistic vision, its performances and arts, all center around one tiny bird. One bird at the very center. So, let's consider this an invitation, a call, to plan some festivals of depth, to plan some festivals of focus, of rapture. Let's arouse the gods. Let's quench that one longing. Let's plan festivals where the living stone at the center is the portal to the brilliance of eternity. Do you remember? Do you remember your sore, dusty feet as the festival finally came to a close? The songs of the goddess had all been sung. Her sacred steps had all been danced. Her story told and told again. And all the petals, the flower offerings washing downstream. And all the stumps of beeswax from last night's candles burning. And each of us left to return to temporal life. And each of us left by the river's edge to sing. To sing and sing and sing the winding ivy, and sing the fennel bulb, and sing the wreaths of violets on the great pine of Addis, and sing the running water, and sing the mudcake tears, and sing the soft glow of dawn. Special thanks to Charlotte Malin for providing the beautiful viola music that appears in certain sections of today's podcast. And you can check out more of Charlotte's music at resonanthearthealing.com. Thanks also to Galen Passan for the sitar. Galen's work is available on Instagram at Galen Passan. The song Deus Erotas 
appears courtesy of the band Daemonia Nymphi, and if you haven't checked them out, they are a band that uses traditional ancient Greek instruments, and their music is absolutely beautiful. And again, the name of the band is Daemonia Nymphi. Special thanks to Walker Barnard for the song Full Moon. And this episode contains reference to many books, movies, articles. These include... Howard University's removal of classics is a spiritual catastrophe. Opinion piece in the Washington Post by Cornell West and Jeremy Tate. Saving Beauty by Byung-Chul Han. Dancing in the Streets by Barbara Ehrenreich. Greek Religion by Walter Burkhart. I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day by Coco Mellon. Art in the Age of Artifice by J.F. Martel. Manufacturing Consent, the 1992 film about Noam Chomsky. The Cult of Pan by Philippe Bourgeau. Initiation into the Eleusinian Mysteries by Jan N. Bremer. The Crane, Ariadne's Thread, Labyrinth, and Dance by Gaudenzio Ragazzi. Ancient Greek Dance by Natalie Chobanet in the World History Encyclopedia. The Princess Bride, the 1987 film starring Carrie Elwes and Robin Wright Penn. Dancing for the Snake, Possession, Gender, and Identity in the Worship of Manasa Devi in Assam by Hugh Urban. The Doctrine of Vibration by Mark Duskowski. The Shiva Sutras, translated by Jaidev Singh. The Mass of God series from Joseph Campbell. The Bible, King James Version. Gimme Shelter, the 1970 documentary featuring the Rolling Stones. Free Tibet, 2000 documentary featuring the Beastie Boys and directed by Sarah Perozek. Collective Effervescence, a year immersed in transformational festivals by Jan Isabel Friend. And, of course, Eminem straight up reciting the Iliad of Homer in Ancient Greek, the YouTube video by Marcus Hoxton. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the emerald podcast. That's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the emerald podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as $6 per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. Thank you.